This is the Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net and in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. In November, we started our discussion on how mental illness is impacting our nation and particularly our courts. In this episode, we're taking a deeper dive into the criminal justice realm, specifically the challenge of competency to stand trial, the task of determining if a defendant is competent to stand trial, to assist in one's own defense, can be daunting. The road to restoring a defendant to competency can be arduous and leave some people in an incarcerated limbo for weeks or even months. I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. This month is the second of our five-episode discussion with the members of the National Judicial Task Force to examine state courts' response to mental illness. Some of the questions we'll explore include, what are some of the specific challenges surrounding competency to stand trial? What is being done to overcome those challenges on both the national and the community level? And what recommendations does the task force have for us? I'm joined today by the Honorable Nan Waller, Judge of the 4th Judicial District in Portland, Oregon, and Richard Schwermer with the National Center for State Courts and retired State Court Administrator for the State of Utah. Thank you both for joining today's podcast. Thank you, Pete. Judge Waller, as a trial judge in Multnomah County, Oregon, what are you seeing on a daily basis in the area of competency to stand trial? Uh, today is the, is a very good day to ask me that question because I've spent my entire day dealing with competency issues um, from the beginning of the day until I just uh, got off the bench a, a few minutes ago. Um, I probably dealt with 30 different people who had competency issues over the course of the day. The very first person I uh, had in front of me, I didn't actually see. He had gotten into my courtroom And two minutes later, as I was opening the door to arrive, he'd been whisked out because he had deteriorated in that short period of time to the point where he could not safely sit through the hearing. I think that says a lot about the acuity of the people that we are seeing on a daily basis. This afternoon, I dealt with so many people who were so acute. People, some of them who had very, uh, what would be considered in the realm of things, minor charges, a contempt of court where the maximum penalty is six months in custody or harassment. And yet their acuity is so high that in terms of getting people into uh, treatment in the community is such that our community restoration staff didn't feel like they could properly serve them because they didn't have the right placements. I've seen people who have gone in and out and come back again. Uh, A woman who I don't know how many times she's been In the state hospital, our state hospital, the cost is $1,500 a day. She has a delusion that leads to her continuing to violate a restraining order. Uh, She has uh, maxed out at the state hospital. The maximum penalty, again, is six months, and then comes back again, and we start the whole process over again, where she's arrested, taken to jail, eventually released or sent to the hospital, and uh, we start again. We start anew. And I think I've done sometimes on some days, just for my own sanity, calculation of what we've put in and what we've gotten out of it. And when you 
have spent $300,000 on hospitalization, but at the end of the day, the charges are dismissed because the person hasn't been restored and they have no housing and you have to open up the door and say, good luck. And you know, when it's the middle of winter, like it is now, when I say, and I hope you have a coat, do we have, you know, do you have a place to go? And there is nothing that's not a very uh, satisfying either for the community or as a judge who cares about the people in front of me or for the victims in the community. And yet that's the position that we are in because the numbers of people are so significant right now who have competency issues. I see people with really serious charges who, you know, the, the path is a little clearer that we, in those instances, because there are significant public safety issues, that we most likely need to send them to the hospital. Our hospital has been beyond capacity for some time now, and there's a federal litigation that is ongoing. They have had to deal with COVID and come up with uh, significant protocols in terms of not allowing people into the hospital for periods of time. We've been on a pause for admissions. I got an email just as I uh, logged on that they are coming off of the pause as of today and will begin to be able to admit people. But for many of the people that I deal with, we shouldn't be, we should have alternatives in the community given the level of charge and services and placements that will deal with their acuity of symptoms. One of the, um, I go jail side uh, if the jail isn't on lockdown uh, because of COVID, which it has been uh, at times recently, but there's nothing worse than, um, there's a dorm where it has the most acute people in our jail. It's 4D. And literally when you walk onto 4D, it is an assault on every sense. You hear people screaming and banging their heads. You hear the, the despair, you smell the feces and the urine that has been spread. Uh, you see people who are lying absolutely almost to the point of being comatose. It is distressing to say the least as a judge. And yet, um, because many people end up in the criminal justice system who have significant mental illness, you know, the jail is doing its best. And I'm not faulting the jail. They are trying their best. They have people sitting 24-7 outside of some cells in order to make sure that people are keeping safe. But it is... I will never forget an individual who I went to his cell. He was sitting naked, um, strapped to a restraint chair with a spit wad in his mouth, held in place by a stocking over his head. He was talking word salad. He hadn't been eating or drinking for days and the jail was desperately concerned that, he, that they wouldn't be able to keep him alive, let alone manage his mental health issues. Those are the kinds of stories that stay with one. And I, I hope that we are going to be able to, with the recommendations coming from the task force, with the other work that's being done in Oregon, that we're going to be able to come up with the kinds of solutions for people, some of whom can be appropriately deflected from the jail. And when you have somebody who, everybody who handles our aid and knows by name because they come back and they come back and come back. That's saying something is not working as it should uh, for a court system. Rick, I understand that you've been the lead on the task force work in this area. What have you learned about competency to stand trial on a national level? Well, Pete, I hate to, to pile on with the woes, but unfortunately, the situation, the circumstances that Judge Waller describes are not unique to Oregon. They are in almost every state. Um, and, and unfortunately, that's what we've learned, that 
all states or almost all states are struggling to meet the demand for competency evaluations on a timely basis. They have insufficient resources for restoration, too few options for restoration. And as Judge Waller just mentioned, they fail to effectively transition folks back into the community. We see this cycle over and over and over again as people work their way through the competency system. Judge Waller also mentioned litigation. There have been at least a dozen states that have been sued in federal court because of constitutional failures to provide appropriate care for folks in these circumstances. And not surprisingly, all of those states have lost. Uh, that's not a good way to make public policy, but that's what has happened is that in some cases we've had states that have been sued and then um, had judgments or consent decrees and then failed to comply with the terms of those consent decrees. And in those circumstances, uh, even still, many of those states have failed to comply with the orders of the court and are paying dozens of millions of dollars in contempt penalties still today. So one other thing that Judge Waller mentioned that, that I think is worth reminding folks, although I don't think we need a reminder, is that the pandemic has made things so much worse, certainly for the individuals, but also for the systems. Uh, they have created enormous bottlenecks in the process. But, but, and this is the important part, we have also learned that there are states, there are jurisdictions that have found ways to solve some of these problems and to overcome these issues. And that's really what we wanna focus on. We wanna focus on the fact that in Los Angeles, in Hollywood and in Massachusetts, they have same day evaluation processes where they quickly determine if a person should penetrate that system further. We have diversion options in some of our states where folks don't even go into the competency system, uh, particularly when they have low level charges. Again, as Judge Waller mentioned, we have some really promising case management in, uh, innovations, for example, in Colorado, where the legislature gave funding to the administrative office of the courts in Colorado to hire essentially case managers who work for the judges, work for the courts, but manage this new system that people are engaged in and try to connect the folks that are going through the system with services, keep track of the timeliness of all of the different moving parts that are going on. And that's a real promising innovation. There are diversion from the whole competency process statutes in a number of states, uh, in Texas, in New York, also in Miami, and then in some of the other states. Arizona courts take a direct role in training and qualifying evaluators, competency evaluators, so that the needs of the courts and the participants are better met um, in that evaluation process. And to jump back to, to uh, Oregon, they have a truly amazing competency in Oregon, it's called aid and assist, but a competency data dashboard that is truly the envy, should be the envy of, of every state in data updated every day that gives the courts and their partners the opportunity to identify things that are working well, where there are problems and identify those issues early so that they can address them. So my takeaway is that what we've learned is that we know how to solve these problems. We have successful models across the states and we need to celebrate and publicize those innovations and give jurisdictions the tools to advocate and accomplish system change. And our first step was to reduce those uh, successful approaches and policies that we found into a report. 
And that report had recommendations for redesigning parts of the process. And, and that was one of the first products of the task force. So that's what we've uh, learned to date, both the bad and the good, Pete. Judge Waller, the task force identified competency to stand trial as a priority. Can you tell us about the 10 task force recommendations and what court professionals and judges need to know about them? Thank you. We did come up with 10, 10 recommendations. And I think the, the one thing that I really wanna say is that in the competency arena, you have to have the courts working with all of the other stakeholders to the competency system. It's bringing together people from criminal justice and behavioral health. It's not a problem that the court can solve by itself. And it's not a problem that any of the other stakeholders can solve alone. Uh, and that's embedded in many of the recommendations of the task force, the need to really collaborate in a meaningful way with each other, which requires that we have relationships of trust. It means that you're not just sitting at a meeting and then everyone goes back to their own organizations. Um, you have to, because these are to solve competency issues, to solve the clogs in the system, it means that we're gonna to have to make some systemic changes and that there has to be a level of trust as we do it so that everyone's, every system's mandates can be followed. One of the most important things that we looked at was reducing simply the numbers of cases that are coming before the court for competency issues. We have so many cases, there are lots of theories about why it's gone up, but if we can divert the numbers, then obviously that relieves some of the stress on, this, on our, throughout the system. And there are ways that you can do that. I think that I flipped it in my, as I was thinking about preparing for today in my brain is that we have to deflect cases from the criminal justice system because I think that we often are the, our door is always open. You know, during the pandemic, so many things have been closed, but what has been open every day? The jail and the court. And so when people are in distress, when they're having a breakdown in the middle of the night, in the middle of the street and creating a public nuisance, People are deflected who might otherwise, I have somebody who I dismissed 70 trespass charges from the airport over the course of a summer. And I think it was, you know, the jail was open and he was brought in and then given a lawyer. So diverting cases from the criminal justice system and the criminal justice system, likewise, diverting cases to some other place. In order to do that, you obviously need to be able to answer the question of divert to what? Locally, we are working on building a crisis stabilization and intervention center so that we went out to Pima County to look at what they'd done. And they have done a very successful job of being able to have that point of deflection, a place where it's faster for first responders and easier for first responders to drop off somebody in a behavioral health crisis. And that takes a great deal of collaboration and working together. We need to restrict cases as we get cases into the funnel um, do we have a line that makes sense in terms of who actually gets an evaluation? And the same thing in terms of looking at our, where people are evaluated and where they get treatment. It doesn't all have to be, I mean, in Oregon, it cannot be in the jail. Some places have jail restoration. The task force looked at that and was not in favor of jail restoration, but while people are, people are in jail, we certainly want them to be getting any treatment that they need and, and deserve. So we want an alternative to evaluations taking place in the jail or having to take places, place in the hospital. Both of those are scarce resources that are often expensive and we should come up with alternatives. 
We need to find treatment beyond the hospital, and that means in the community. And that follows with one of the, the final recommendation is we need housing because you can't, uh, having tried it, you don't have very successful community restoration when somebody is living on, on a, in a tent on the sidewalk. They are, that is too much stress on them to be able to show up when they need to show up and participate. Uh, we absolutely need to, res- uh, to revise our restoration protocols. What are we actually doing in terms of how we are providing restoration services? What does the evidence, are there evidence-based uh, protocols that we can use? Or do we need to invest also in some research that really as to what works? We know that medication is often necessary for many people. What are the other kinds of restoration services that we have faith will actually get people to the point where they are restored? We need to have rational timelines for competency process. And the states vary greatly across the country. Some states have restoration services for 45 days. In Oregon, for a felony, you can be kept in the state hospital for up to three years. Although I think that probably most people in the state hospital, the evaluators would say, you know, you have a pretty good sense way before then as to how long, uh, as to whether somebody is going to be restorable or not. Um, we need to address operational inefficiencies. For my court, we have consolidated the docket to one judge. We have uh, a team that is there every week. So there's the issue of trust that's been uh, dealt with and also expertise that's uh, dealt with. And how do you simply deal with the issues of lining up the evaluators? And some jurisdictions have multiple evaluator evaluators as an option. That's expensive. And you know I think that there is, it should be questioned as to how effective it is to have five evaluations of somebody. We have dealt with that by having Evaluators who do very rapid evaluations, they do a full forensic evaluation in less than a week. Both the uh, district attorney's office and the uh, defense have a great deal of trust in the evaluator. So they're not asking very often for a second evaluation. One of the biggest issues across the country, and certainly in Oregon, I deal with it every day, is that we, uh, we are in a behavioral health workforce crisis, uh, and we need to work on ways of recruiting and uh, retaining staff. And that provides means that we have to have the training that they need. And we also need to have to really listen to what they need in order to stay in the profession. And we need to, Rick talked about Oregon's aid and assist dashboard. Um, I was having a conversation this morning that we think our dashboard has accurate, good data, but there are other parts of the system that, uh, that have different data than ours. And so making sure that we have a data set that everyone has complete faith that it is uh, the picture. I think that our dashboard is excellent and and does a great job at that. But I think that that's imperative because we all know the the question of, well, that's not what my data says. I have a different count. And so we need to be counting apples to apples and oranges to oranges and making sure that everyone agrees. And then probably most importantly, we need to have a robust community-based treatment and Uh, housing that is very specifically for the competency population and that covers the whole continuum from shelter placements that are supportive all the way to community secure treatment placements. Some people who have high level of acuity but don't need a hospital level of care are going to need that at least initially secure setting until they stabilize. So could I add just two things to that? Some people may be surprised. The whole first third or so of what Judge Waller talked about is before people even get to court. And 
I think that one of the things that we've also learned in this task force process and that we're trying to encourage courts to do is to understand that we as courts have a stake in what happens before folks ever come through our doors. And it is not only an opportunity, but a responsibility, we think, of court leaders to participate in the development of those front-end services, in those diversion opportunities, in those crisis responses that Judge Waller mentioned, because you know her, her analogy of a funnel, by the time folks get to us, if they shouldn't be there, we have frustrated systems, we have frustrated judges, and that's not a good place to be. The second thing I'd mention, if I could, <clears throat> because I know that a lot of your viewers and listeners are court managers, court executives, is that if you read no other recommendation in this, in this paper, look at recommendation seven, because that's where we really talk about the kinds of nuts and bolts, uh, strategies that local court managers, it's right in their wheelhouse. So as we talk about things like developing evaluation templates, so that we don't have frustrated partners looking at evaluations that don't make sense to them or that are about the wrong thing that don't have information that it should. Uh, using case managers, court liaisons that I mentioned before is another sort of case management kind of strategy. Court case management, the Judge uh, Waller mentioned, centralized calendars, frequent reviews of those folks that have been referred for restoration so that they don't languish waiting for an arbitrary six-month review but we take a look at them in 45 days and see if we can move them through the system more quickly. And then finally, teams. You develop expertise among prosecution, defense, behavioral health providers, and judges to understand the hydraulics of the system and where the resources are. So again, a lot of those are really court management kinds of issues, particularly in that recommendation number seven that talks about efficiencies um, that we can build into the system. Rick, in addition to the competency task force report, describe some other reports and resources that are available to improve court and community responses to mental illness. Absolutely, um, you know, with respect to competency, but with respect to other issues as well. One of the things that surprised me when I began to really focus on this issue is, again, the number of resources that are out there, the research that has been done. So we've collated those resources into what we call the Behavioral Health Resources Hub. I think we've provided you uh, with a link to that that we'll provide with to folks. And that is <clears throat> a, a constellation of all the best research and resources organized across the sequential intercept model. Hopefully folks are familiar with that. It goes from zero to five and tracks the potential intercepts of a person with a serious mental illness in the criminal justice system. Um, there's more to it than that, but, but that resource hub really has a lot of information about the entire process. I also mentioned Behavioral Health Alerts, which is a newsletter that we put out twice a month. And just as an example, the, the newsletter that just came out uh, earlier this week, we described and linked to a study that just barely came out on using remote technology to conduct competency evaluations and other forensic assessments really timely as we talk about COVID issues. And as we, as we, so many of our courts are rural, what a great way to spread resources is to use remote evaluations so that you don't have to have somebody drive two or three hours to conduct a 30 minute evaluation, or especially if you have, as Judge Waller's first uh, defendant today was, someone who's decompensated and, and, and can't be evaluated. So using remote technology turns out to be very much an evidence-based 
practice. And there are specific tips that were in that uh, research study, both for courts looking at the legal issues and also for the clinicians and the evaluators that talked about ways in which that could be made more successful. So every edition has practical resources like that. I do want to mention Just and Well, which is the title of a companion piece that uh, CSG, the Council of State Governments, produced in conjunction with the National Center for State Courts on this topic that goes through a lot of the same issues um, from a slightly different lens, but, but is very much a companion piece to our uh, 10 recommendations. And then um, I'll mention, as I did a little bit earlier, that we have an interest in leading change, not just in what happens in the four walls of our courthouses, but in other places as well. So we also have lots of resources, both for local jurisdictions, there's a leading change guide, and one for state level leaders. We have collaborative case management documents, diversion resources, lots of other resources. And I'll just mention one other thing, and that is that we're also leading site visits because we know that some people can learn by reading things and hearing about things, but other people really want to understand, especially when you're talking about system change, how does it really look on the ground? And so we've led site visits to some of the most innovative and successful jurisdictions. We've been to Miami to see the Miami model led by Judge Leifman, um, Judge Waller and others from Oregon. We just went to Pima County in Arizona to observe their uh, deflection, diversion, and crisis response systems, which are really absolutely the best. Uh, and we have other visits planned for those sites that are coming up that folks can look for, announcements of the behavior health alerts. Uh, and then also, uh, I know that we're going to have a site visit to Hollywood to watch some of that same-day competency process in action. And also, Los Angeles has terrific um, housing resources. So lots more to come, but those are the resources that we've, uh, that we've got in place already. What can we expect from the task force in 2022 in terms of criminal justice resources? Judge Waller? Some tools. We're, we're looking at how we develop those tools. You know, can we, we looked originally at, should we try to come up with a model statute? And we decided that wasn't going to work. There were too many differences between states. But I think that we are looking at, you know, are there templates that we can help develop that will be, are there checklists to make sure that people have when they get started on really looking at their competency system, that they have a checklist that they can begin to go through and assess what they have, what they don't have, who should be at the table. We finished the, the big report, it got approved, which was great. And now the, the real work becomes, which is developing some of those tools that people can use as they begin the, the uh, task of putting this into place. It's a bit daunting when you just read the 10 recommendations and say, how do I start? And we wanna give people the path to getting started. And that will require some tools to assist them in who should be at the table, how do we collaborate, who takes the lead in some of these areas. Rick? Uh, thank you. First, I, I just wanna add on to uh, what Judge Waller mentioned about the, the conference that they just did. Um, one entity that she didn't mention that I think is so important is there were at least three legislators at various times on the calls, speaking to folks, listening to the issues. And it's so important, as she mentioned earlier, to have that collaboration between all three branches, because that's the only way we're going to get system change implemented. While system change is great, and that's what we'd like to talk about on National Judicial Task Forces, nonetheless, we need the tools. We need the implementation uh, widgets that help people actually do things in their courtrooms at the local level, at the jurisdictional level. 
so the, the competency system evaluation tool that Judge Waller mentioned um, with respect to competency, but in addition to those competency tools, we're also now focusing on mental health court resources, which I know are woefully inadequate right now, and we're trying to find ways to remedy that. We're also working on model, um, I, and I will say relative to, to model statutes, Another thing that we have done at the request of uh, technical assistance request of a number of states is to look at their competency statutes uh, where they've come to us and just said, you know, we love these 10 recommendations. Here's our competency statute. Do you have some recommendations for ways in which we could change it? And we worked with uh, probably half a dozen states and those changes have been adopted uh, in many cases. And so that's um, another resource that's coming down the road. But but really, I, I think that, uh, as Judge Waller mentioned, our focus now is turning, particularly in competency, but in the area, other areas as well, to implementation tools for both state and local jurisdictions for all of the topics that we're looking at. We're trying not to just produce a- academic papers that will be read and, and, and forgotten, but we want to give local judges and court managers practical tools and resources to help them make meaningful changes in their communities. And one thing that I wanna add is, I think that the Oregon dashboard, which I think is is amazing because it does give local courts real-time data on who they're sending and who they're not and how long people are waiting and what's the time gap between uh, the court signing an order and transport to the hospital or release to the community is that that's, a good model for states to look at however they choose to do it. But if you're not counting and you're not keeping track of, we all know that we can have we can have a bit of a pat on the back of we're doing okay, we all really care about this. And we all know that good intentions are great and everyone's working hard, but unless you have the data to show that you're getting the results that you need and that you're spending uh, efficiently to fill the gaps that you need, I think that we are all it's too easy to have that self-delusion as to how things are going on. So I think that developing the tools, including how we use data and templates for collecting it. I mean, we've had to do, we've trained up court coordinators in order to collect the data because it's not something that we would normally be collecting in our case management system. And the other thing about data, if I could, Pete, just to mention also is that, you know, this task force has been going on for two years now and, events that we have all seen together have made us really be sure that we're focusing on racial fairness as well. And you can't really do that if you don't have good data. And so we're trying to incorporate that uh, racial uh, equity lens into the work of this task force as well. And I think that's very appropriate and very important. I wanna thank Judge Nan Waller and Richard Schwermer for joining us today and sharing more of the important work of the task force. Be sure to join us in March for the next installment in this series on mental health and the courts. As always, my thanks to you court professionals tuning in to today's episode. You know the challenge of mental illness in the courts on a daily basis. It's your ability and understanding that allows the courts to fulfill the promise of justice. Thank you. Join us in February for another episode dealing with the issues facing our courts. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for joining us today.
Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leader's Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on YouTube, on Facebook, on iTunes, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter. Become part of the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is CLA Podcast, that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. Did you hear an interesting comment by one of the panelists that you would like to listen to again, but you don't want to search through the entire episode to find it? The additional resources section of the webpage contains a question time marker sheet. Just find the discussion question on the sheet, and next to it is the time that question was asked. You can then quickly fast forward to that time in the episode and listen to the panelists' comments. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, thank you, and have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.